I say, this talk about war is all poppycock, isn't it? No, Sir Henry. I know Hitler. Oh, yes, he's written a book, hasn't he? Yes. Sort of an outdoor book, isn't it? What's it called? Oh, yes. My Camp. Welcome to Season 2 of How Would Lubitsch Do It? A podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's March 1920, and today, David Cairns joins us to discuss Cole Heisel's Daughters. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Right. Hello, everyone. We are here with David Cairns. Uh, David, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a filmmaker. I'm a screenwriter occasionally and critic and teacher. I teach at Edinburgh College of Art on a practical film course. I make films when I can, but more recently I've been writing about film on my blog. I have a daily blog called Shadowplay and writing essays and making video essays for Blu-ray DVD releases. So one thing I did was a little piece on Madame de Barry, and I've done a couple of things on silent Lubitsches for box sets. I came to Lubitsch probably relatively late in my film fandom. I did see To Be or Not To Be when I was at school at our school film society, and they actually projected it on, it seemed like they had 35 millimeter. I can't really believe it thinking back. And we totally failed to appreciate it. Mm. <laughs> we were teenagers and to us, the then recent Mel Brooks remake was the clearly superior film, which I think nobody in their right mind <laughs> would suggest today. <laughs> and that's come to be one of my favorite Lubitsches. My, my feeling about him is that I can enjoy a Lubitsch from any part of his career, but he seems to me just get richer and richer as he goes. So that Clooney Bryan might be my all-time favorite. That's an increasingly common opinion I hear, Clint Brown being one of his best films, when that was, for a while, kind of off the radar. So, uh, as far as your own relationship with Lubitsch goes, are there any specific films, moments that really define him for you? Any specific gestures or scenes that come up that you're like, that to me, that's the Lubitsch I love? I don't know if I could boil it down to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody talks about Doors, everybody talks about the art of inference and subtlety and elegance, and indirection gets oblique storytelling and that's certainly all true i don't know to what extent that is key to my fondness for him it's certainly something i appreciate in him what do you think is the key to your fondness for him what defines him separate from other directors for you personally i like that he generally seems to like his characters he doesn't have a lot of villains uh he has you know schnooks and dopes occasionally <laughs> i like his refined tolerant attitude i mean when he comes to deal with the nazis it's very interesting because that would seem to fly in the face of all that and it's a curious job for him to take on given his interests and it's incredibly successful in ways that are hard to pin down uh, words like civilized are used a lot talking about it. I fear falling into cliche there, but I like his tolerance and his feeling that life should be enjoyed. Mm -hmm. He's something of a hedonist, you get the feeling, and yet he makes that seem like quite a profound, a valuable thing to be that's not worthless. That uh, The ability to enjoy life is something that should be treasured and should be inspired to. 
I find that even at this stage in his career, there is a certain morality that I keep returning to in his films where it's not so much, are you a generous person? It's not so much even, are you a virtuous, actually virtuous person? One is how are your manners? That matters. But two is, is your joie de vivre there? <laughs> how much are you actually enjoying life? Yeah. And uh, one thing that bothers me about him sometimes a little bit is the, the occasional chauvinism. And it concerned me going into this movie, since it's a version, albeit much removed, of one of the most chauvinistic plays in the English canon, The Taming of the Shrew. And yet he, he didn't go too far wrong with it. It was acceptable. Maybe because the film is so old, you cut it some slack on the sexual politics front. But it's not too offensive. There are some issues, but it, it's not as anti-feminist as the original Shakespeare. Yeah, it's interesting. I could have picked a much more uh, troubling director for this. I could be talking about John Ford. God forbid anyone does a Griffith podcast. But even as far as Lubitsch is concerned, uh, one still has to navigate while watching these, the politics of people who are active over 100 years ago. So the two films from now, I'm going to have to talk about uh, Lubitsch uh, in Brownface, in Simran, which I don't look forward to. And we've already had various sexual, racial, colonial politics that have popped up and will continue to pop up, especially in the Berlin period. It's people operating 103 years ago in a moral system that is completely alien to ours in some certain ways. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap, but then there's bits where it just takes off in its own direction. Yeah, and the Shakespeare play, I think, is a problem in the sense you can read it, you can enjoy it. But if you're going to stage it nowadays, you have to find a way of making it clear why you're telling this story. Uh, So you get various slightly contorted attempts to subvert it or apologize for it or just transform it, all of which is sort of interesting. But you end up maybe not doing the play as written here because firstly, it's a movie. It's a movie based on a play inspired by Taming of the Shrew. And it's over 100 years old, so we don't have to ask why is he doing this now? (laughs) Why did he do this then? He thought it was funny. So all of that makes that less of a pressing concern. And I was just watching it with a great deal of curiosity to see where they would hit hurdles and what they would do about them. This is a good opportunity to get into the lineage of this movie, which is very interesting. And it obviously starts with The Taming of the Shrew. But based on your research, where does it go from there? How do we get from Taming of the Shrew to this? I believe Hans Crowley who is a frequent script collaborator and an actor, had written it as a play. And there are, in fact, several later film versions of it, including a 1931, uh, Henny Porton's first talkie, where she reprises it. So, yes, I think it had been a hit play. And Lubitsch was fond of adapting hit plays. <laughs> you have the, the assurance of success behind you, and he was very good at it. And he had great success with it. It was very, very popular. And then according to my Scott Iman Lubitsch biography. He rather dismissed the film in later years, called it uh, typical German stuff. Yeah, and Ayman also is fairly dismissive towards it. And uh, I must say, having watched the film, I'm a little surprised at the immediate dismissal. I quite enjoyed this movie. Yeah, it's funny. I could imagine it really being a hit with an audience. I could imagine that the laughs that I got would be amplified greatly if there was a hundred of me. Yeah, it was was enjoyable. Very broad, Mm -hmm. but no worse for that. 
It's less broad than the previous Lubitsch comedies that I quite liked. It's certainly less broad than The Oyster Princess. And still, that leaves open a wide berth of broadness. But I was actually, I mean, and I should say that this is a fairly loose adaptation a couple generations removed from Taming of the Shrew. It concerns two sisters, each of whom are trying to find love in their own way. And Emilia Annings plays, you know, a, a suitor who wants to marry one uh, whom he considers attractive and... The father says, no, you have to marry off her sister. So he decides to marry her sister so he can marry the other sister. It's, you know, a classic Shakespeare comedy of errors type thing. And to me, I mean, the most remarkable part of the film is Henny Porton here, who plays both sisters. And you would not know it if you weren't told going in, in my opinion. I mean, she successfully disguises herself very well. And I thought this was one of the best performances I've seen from this era, in my opinion. And I don't mean that in a backhanded way. I, I loved her work here. I was blown away by it. She's great. And distinguishing the two sisters with costume and a little bit of padding and not very much makeup, but you're never in doubt as to which one you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And late in the story, the bigger, older sister gets a makeover, which does make her much more like the younger sister, mm -hmm. but you still don't ever get confused. So there's that. There's the doubling aspect and then there's the different kinds of broad comedy that she brings to each of them. Because mm -hmm, as Gretel, she's this naive babe in the woods uh, type who is just completely uh, credulous. She believes everything she hears immediately. Her performance there is almost comparatively subtle compared to her performance as Liesel, who is this broad, shrewish woman who, and I think her performance as Liesel is my favorite of the two, who you know has this buried romanticism in her at all times. You know, it's she's fearsome. Yeah. And it's not just in these big, bold, arms-waving, Emily Annings-type gestures. It's her little facial expressions, the little details. She shades the character in constantly. You always get this sense. I mean, when she's like tending the bar, there's a loneliness to her, you know, the way she carries herself. And it's not just that she wants to push everyone else away. You feel that she's suffering as a result of her pushing everyone else away. It's remarkable work, I think. And it's an unspoken thing that's essential to make sense of what then happens in the story, that she falls in love with her husband. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit unaccountable because it's Emily Annings. He's, he's no love boat, <laughs> nor does his character here have in any way an appealing personality. He's trying to actively sabotage the relationship too. Yes. And that seems to drive her deeper into love with him. Mm -hmm. I think there's Shakespeare is annoyingly vague about why his Kate is cursed, why she's a shrew. What is she angry about? And here they seem to have decided, I think, she's sort of improperly civilized. She hasn't learned that you can get more with a kind word or with honey than with violence and mustard. Uh, she, her preferred method of communication is to shake a milking stool at somebody. Violence is her first resort every time. <laughs> and it has resulted in her not getting the most out of her social lives. I love how this resolves too in that way, right? Where the key ingredient of any comedy, especially romantic comedy, is as to how you resolve it, is the creation of an equilibrium. You go from a status quo to a conflict to equilibrium. And I just love that you have Emil Yannings, this, I don't even know how to describe him. He's just a kind of a jerk. <laughs> you know, he would call him the 1920s version of a douchebag pickup artist. Yeah. And so that is paired with uh, Liesel's Henny Porton version two's I mean, abrasiveness. <laughs> and that creates its own new equilibrium of this boisterous relationship that you can tell it's, there's going to be conflict, but they're going to work it out. Yeah. It's interesting how it departs from Shakespeare to get there. Because Shakespeare has multiple suitors. Mm -hmm. And the Petruchio, the character that Yannings is standing in for, 
marries Kate because he just requires a wealthy wife. And he doesn't care that she has eternal personality. He's confident that he can fix that. And he then proceeds to basically gaslight her. He deprives her of food and clothing and a bed to sleep on, always with the, the excuse that, no, this food's not good enough for you. This bed's not comfortable enough. I'm going to smash it. Until he bends her to his will, which involves getting her to say that the sun is the moon, as long as she agrees with him. Mm-hmm. And she's goes along with this and they they seem to find a kind of partnership, but it's arrived at through effectively torture. There's some of that here. Yes. Libich's film or Crayley's story invents the idea of Petruchio deciding to marry the older daughter, wait until she gets fed up and throws him out, and then marry the younger, which makes him a sort of schemer. It's not very plausible that the father of the two girls would go along with this, but we can sort of accept it for the sake of the story. And it becomes, as a result of this, a scheme that goes wrong. So we're waiting for Yannings to get a kind of comeuppance. He, he thinks it's going to go one way and it duly goes a different way. And we get to enjoy his discomfiture with, with things not winding up the way he expected. And then his being happy with the way things they wind up. Uh, so it inverts quite a lot it still gets you to the, the point of strife where rather than killing his wife with kindness, he's smashing the house up and terrifying her. That room trashing scene, by the way, is brilliant. Yeah, it gets away with it, mainly, I think, because Henny Porton is so funny and so good at keeping the comedy going in a situation that could turn dark. I think, too, it's one of the earliest examples I've noticed of Lubitsch using doors in a specific uh, way. In this case, uh, what happens is that about halfway through the scene where Emilia Annings is trying to frighten Liesel by trashing up the room, which this is like the third or fourth major room trashing scene in a Lubitsch movie. I almost want to call it an tourist gesture at this point because we've had at least two examples of Osios Walda destroying rooms, too. And so... What happens is halfway through that scene, we cut to a shot in the corridor and all we see is the furniture being tossed out. And the joke is that the furniture gets unreasonably large. It ends with him tossing out an entire wall-sized wardrobe that is physically not possible. But I think that not only is it very funny, but it also accomplishes this kind of distancing thing, right? You know, as he's getting really fearsome, we're privy to the funny byproduct of that thing. Dara, one of our guests from season one, might call this a margin of safety. It's that sense of discretion or obliqueness or rather than showing the thing, you see the effect of the thing, but you see the indirect effect of it, not the terror of the wife. No, it's more about where the furniture is landing, which is somewhere else altogether. At the bottom of a flight of stairs, in fact. So it's a whole other part of the house that it's winding up. Mm-hmm. And that does echo or pre-echo what he's known for with doors, where you have to imagine what's happening in the room that you're not seeing but you're given enough clues. <laughs> it minimizes it too. I mean, it makes it feel ridiculous because it is, but we're not privy to, I mean, Yannings can be frightening and it renders him a little bit of a joke. He's clearly going for the, the laugh in every beat of his performance here. Yeah, I think everybody is. I suppose that might explain Lubitsch's later dismissal of it because it's all big and broad and sort of grotesque. Mm-hmm. Lots of jokes with food and drink, lots of uh, use of food and drink to established people's character by how they treat their beer or their bowl of soup. 
I mean, uh, just to look for other Lubitsch things, his habit of inventing or twisting obscure cultural norms of the places or fictional places he's depicting. Uh-huh. I was uh, a fan of the um, the horse-drawn wedding carriage, and I know virtually nothing of a Bavarian culture circa the 1910s and 20s. And that still, even if that was complete documentary reality, it felt like this little cutesy Lubitsch gesture of, oh, here's something we're maybe familiar with, which is, you know, the just married. I'm looking at with historical hindsight circa 2020. But it still feels like this incredibly fairy tale depiction of uh, of what that would have looked like. <laughs> and then to twist it by having her take over the reins. Mm-hmm. And then we get that very funny shot of Gannings still sat alone in the back of the carriage, isolated in the frame so that we can't see that he's in a carriage. He's just strangely high up in a landscape being bounced about. It's just struck me as a funny image of his sort of I guess emasculation, isolation, discomfiture in a composition that's delightfully odd and maybe partly just a result of that's what that looks like when she's left the frame and we can't change it because putting a camera in a carriage is quite a difficult thing to do anyway. <laughs> uh, but it's it, it really works for him. The bit that made me laugh the most probably is when Yannings is wooing the other sister and they sit on a fence and they're sort of rocking back and forth. He's sort of playing footsie with her to the point where she falls off the fence. And when he looks around, suddenly she's she's just very far away. And we're seeing her from very high up. She's apparently rolled down quite a steep hill in the course of a second. And there's an iris shot, so there's a vignette around it, which makes her seem even tinier. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't been told that they were that high up. So that seemed like a good bit of storytelling. You could show that they're high up, create suspense out of will they fall. But if you want one big laugh, then just doing it as a surprise is really good. And then we get to see him fall down, which is also fun. We get to see him slide all the way to the bottom. (laughs) That totally cracked me up as a piece of excessive slapstick. It's a little bit like the Oyster Princess in its gleeful excess. But Oyster Princess feels almost jazz age to me. It feels it's a city film. It's, It's urban. It's more modern. The people are nominally sophisticated, even if everything is quite hammy and and big. And this is sort of rustic and Bavarian uh, little feathered caps. Mm-hmm. This almost feels a little bit like a uh, predecessor to the Wildcat. <laughs> the Wildcat feels like you put the doll oyster princess in this in a blender and then double the budget. And of course, Romeo and Juliet in the snow. Uh, it's another Shakespeare piece done in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually one of the three this season I have not yet seen. I'm kind of catching up with the ones I haven't seen in order of release. What can we expect with that one? You can expect to see a a more extreme version of the question of what would Lubitsch make of Shakespeare? (laughs) And Romeo and Juliet is no longer a tragedy in Lubitsch's hands. So it shows more in a way than this one does because here the adaptations are probably mainly originally Prally's idea Mm -hmm. and it's still a comedy it's still maybe a slightly sexist comedy about a sort of ruffian who thinks he's smart it's not setting out to totally transmute the nature of a taming of the shrew but it's quite happy to throw out great chunks of the plot and invent its own bits i mean it does feel like at this period though that lubitsch is he's doing everything i mean it's like just looking at 
in the last two years of his surviving works. You go from adaptation of Carmen, uh, you know, big melodramatic tragedy to essentially a 1919 Adam Sandler vacation comedy in Meyer from Berlin to The Oyster Princess, which is this maximalist jazz age farce. And then you have Madame Dewberry, which is this, again, this sweeping historical melodrama with a lot of money behind it. Then The Doll, which is unlike anything ever. And then on and on. I mean, within a year or two years, he's doing Loves of the Pharaoh, which is this ludicrously large historical epic. It's almost, I mean, he has a style at this point. There's definite touches we can see here and there, but it almost feels like he's trying everything before settling on his thing. Yeah, I think it's the period of experimentation. And again, maybe he looks back on that later as those are things that I tried, but this is not what I do. There's that curious story about him uh, getting quite angry about Dreher's Passion of Joan of Arc. I think I said, it's a stylistic dead end. You can't make anything from it. <laughs> it's just this one thing, but it, what good is it to us? And that's maybe partly the result of a man who has tried some wild experiments of his own and has now narrowed his range down and focused on one thing that he wants to do perfectly. I think the idea that film is a medium for young men, young men, young women, young people, there's a degree of justice in it because for a lot of filmmakers, when they get past the period of discovery, when they've tried everything out that they want to try out and now they've decided this is how it's going to be done. That's when most of them become boring. Lubitsch, I guess, has made the smartest decisions. And so he does not become boring. <laughs> no. He just gets better and better. He becomes more disciplined. Yeah. It's interesting too, though, you know, going into this, I thought I would find more throughout these first two seasons of the seeds like, like oh he's making more and more chamber comedies more and more and again we haven't gotten there yet but it's feeling like him seeing a woman of paris was this massive inflection point in his life where after that it's virtually nothing but smaller comedies and dramas set in rooms <laughs> with the odd exception uh, like the, the man i loved or broken melody yeah is is an, an exception but it's sort of using lubitschian methods to do its thing in a strange way it's still using gags even and it's also just like four people in a house for most of its writing time yes but the subject matter and tone are very off his usual path there at that point what we've seen from the trailer of the patriot that one seems stylistically quite, quite different. It's interesting to me, too, that at this point, it seems that we can kind of largely classify Lubitsch films into basically comedies, which are quite diverse at this point in his career. I mean, this this does not resemble the doll in, in any real meaningful way, but they're both comedies. Perfect. And then you have the grand historical dramas, which were largely the ones he was most known for at the time, because Madame Dewberry was his biggest hit. I mean, you could argue possibly ever in terms of context of the times, but it's just such a smash. And then, you know, Anne Boleyn was a big deal. I actually don't know Loves of the Pharaoh, how well that did at the box office. All I know is that that film cost an unfathomable amount of money. Yeah. But I find myself struggling, actually, with the historical and melodrama side of it. I found Madame Dewberry fascinating uh, from an academic point of view. But as a film to watch, you know, just as a two-hour piece of drama, I found it a tough sell. Yeah, I kind of uh, regretted choosing that one to write about <laughs> because I think I was offered a choice and I plumped for one that I hadn't seen. And I could have chosen something more fun than this. I think as they go on, the historical dramas start to get bits of a smutty humor and bits of behavior that are recognizably Lubitschian. Sometimes, if memory serves, slightly more so than in the broader comedies. So I think in the later historical dramas, the epics, 
you'll begin to see maybe more signs of the Lubitsch to come, but probably pretty late on in that sequence. Yeah, we can already see I mean, Student Prince in Old Heidelberg is a big inflection point, I think, uh-huh. where that's that film is at heart a tragedy. It ends, I mean, it has a very, to me, a devastatingly ironic ending. Uh-huh. And yet it is one of my favorite of his films. It's lovely. It's every single moment is filled with either joy or when there isn't joy, there is this longing for the possibility of joy. It feels like a synthesis of all that, even though, again, it's fully fictional. And there's a lot of humor in it fairly long stretches of the first and second act mm-hmm. use humor to progress the romance and so on. Norma Shearer dem- demonstrating the bed is a funny kind of dirty joke. Mm-hmm. I feel like the first half of Carmen too, I actually think is fairly close to really working. Polonegri commandeers the movie practically and it kind of, it, it stops being this tragedy about this captain who falls from grace and more this almost comedy about this very vicarious woman. Considering Lubitsch had a little bit of trouble early on finding his feet in Hollywood, nevertheless, I think you start to see the Lubitsch we recognize much more and almost right away. His early, early Hollywood stuff, I'm deeply excited to watch. I'll be watching the Museum of Modern Art restorations of uh, four of those films, uh, two of which are not available in anything resembling watchable quality otherwise. So I'm very excited for that. Yeah, what ones have they got? They have Rosita. Uh-huh. The Marriage Circle. Uh-huh. Forbidden Paradise and Lady Windermere's Fan. Which is a really good one. Mm-hmm. I like that one probably best of that lot. I think I saw Rosita in Bologna and it's watchable. <laughs> it's not pure limits. <laughs> you didn't have, I think, total control of that one. But yeah, I think Lady Windermere's Fan is, I think it's building on the Marriage Circle's success. He's seized on certain things that he knows he can make work and he makes them work even more. And it's another good sort of loose adaptation where not a single line of Oscar Wilde in it. <laughs> um, just as in uh, Design for Living, there isn't a single line of Noel Coward. Reading about the process for Design for Living, I'm going to try and read the original Coward version first uh, before recording the episode because I'm so curious just to see. Because it's interesting that you got the European Lubitsch making the main characters American. <laughs> and, you know, you cast Gary Cooper, who is originally an aesthete. So I'm looking forward to digging into that a little more. I need to see it again, actually, because I was struck when I saw it last time just by that. Oh, well. This is so pre-code mm-hmm. that we, in a sense, a certain structuring quality of the code that told you where things were going to go and how they would have to resolve. <laughs> That's not there. All bets are off. And it's quite like, how are they going to bring this to any kind of a conclusion? What's it going to be? And I remember maybe not being 100% satisfied, but I need to see it again. My own opinion on the film, which might change when I watch it next, I've seen it, I think, three times at this point, is that I, I do think that its reputation is mildly inflated by the fact that it is so shocking. Okay. As far as non-violent films go, it's probably the go-to example of uh, pre-code access, you know, and that sort of thing. It's certainly for me up there with Jewel Robbery as a film that I think I'm like just shocked that exists. Yeah. I mean, there's no shortage of that in Lubitsch. Love Parade, Monte Carlo, Smiling Lieutenant, and even The Merry Widow a bit all have varying degrees of like, wait, this was possible? I think he reached the point that the plumbing jokes in Clooney Brown mm-hmm. were just the censor was just like, oh, well, Lubitsch is going to do what he's going to do and nobody seems to mind. <laughs> um, so he seems to have enjoyed a fair bit of license even after the code because he had this, obviously the skill to do things indirectly and imply. There's this story that when it was suggested that to be or not to be was a too sort of highfalutin a title for a film. 
think he suggested the sensor objects. The sensor forbids, yes. The sensor forbids. Yeah. And then his stars were horrified that they might find themselves appearing in a film with that title. It's interesting. I've heard conflicting reports of how much that was just essentially a trolling maneuver by Lubitsch, like how much he was actually suggesting this as a title versus just like, you know, the famous story about Back to the Future, where the studio submitted, we don't like this title. Here's a bunch of other titles. And then Spielberg apparently stepped in and responded with, haha, nice joke. (laughs) And that was the end of that. I wonder just how much of a situation that was where it's just Lubitsch was clearly trying to go, well, you don't want my title? Here's a patently ridiculous one. Yes, it's a recognized strategy. This reminds me of a story from Billy Wilder's A Foreign Affair, where he wanted to cast Marlene Dietrich in a role she was born to play. It's a singer in post-war Berlin. I mean, who else could play it? And she turned it down. And so Wilder showed her screen tests of other actresses, did a private screening for her. And apparently all she could do was just complain, oh, she's not right. She's not right. And then Wilder was like, huh? Huh? (laughs) And that's how she got cast in the film. Are there any other elements to Kolheisi's daughters that you think that were of particular interest to you that we haven't talked about yet? Well, there's Lubitsch working with split screen with the one actor playing two parts. And, you know, he doesn't do it a lot. Mm-hmm. He usually doesn't have to. But when he does it, it's quite unobtrusive. I think the planning of the shots there is very skillfully done so that you're not waiting for the next split screen. You're not really conscious of it. Mm-hmm. I never once thought about it. Yeah, you're not conscious of the lack of it either when he's not doing that. And the two sisters are so rarely in the same scene. Yeah. It's most of the film, it sequesters them. Yeah. But there's a couple of split screens. There's a corridor between two buildings, a gap between two buildings, and one sister runs down it and then another one. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, I went to look to see what the comments on the IMDb were. (laughs) And the first one I found was from a former correspondent of mine, F. Gwynplaine McIntyre a.k.a. Froggy, not his real name. <laughs> he, his specialty was uh, reviewing films on the IMDb that are lost films that don't exist. You mentioned him in uh, your uh, Madame de Berry intro, or actually the one for Where's My Treasure? Yes, he claimed to have seen these movies in the homes of collectors and he couldn't share the information, but he had seen it and he was now going to review it. <laughs> My first impulse was that he's making this one up as well. He's, it may exist, but he hasn't seen it because he's talking about there's no split screen in it when there obviously is and he's talking about Emil Yanning's being uh, surprisingly svelte <laughs> alright uh, he's not as portly as maybe we're used to seeing him but he's still a big fat round faced <laughs> <laughs> ugly man yeah uh, svelte is not a word that you could ever ever apply to Emil <laughs> but then he does talk about a specific shot where the two sisters run through the gap in the building. So I guess either he's seen a bit of it or his memory is not perfect and he's forgotten the split screen moments or didn't notice them. Mm-hmm. I think it's maybe that he didn't notice them because it's so unobtrusively delivered to us. And then there's one thing that strikes me as an early Lubitsch stumble when the older sister throws a man out of the house mm-hmm. and he's flung out one screen direction and he lands in the exterior traveling in the opposite direction, which is something you see occasionally in Lubitsch's films of that period. And I guess they they didn't have continuity girls or script supervisors at the time. So it was like, if you're filming and you're trying to match a shot between a location and a studio, it's just your memory that you're going on or any notes that you may have taken. So yes, a little bit of a beginner's flaw there, but it's easy to understand how it could have come about. I think it's Anne Boleyn has the tennis match, which is cut. (laughs) The ball is constantly changing direction from shot to shot, that's mm-hmm. that's a much worse example. And you struggle to imagine how he could have made such a mistake. 
Well, it's interesting. I mean, I try and emphasize that this isn't like he's getting closer to an endpoint, which is classical Hollywood realism, because I don't think it's true at all. No. But it's clear at this point that idea of classical screen continuity that we take now in 2022, the past 80, 90 some odd years is the bedrock of pop cinema. That is still at best a secondary concern for Lubitsch here. Yeah. You know, you have these shots where, you know, he's breaking what you might call the 30 or 45 degree rule constantly. There's axial cuts. There's characters. Um, screen direction is at best incidental between shots. Uh-huh. Although I do think that the house that Liesl and Yennings live in is an interesting case where there's a certain continuity to the direction that Liesl runs in when she runs from one room to the next that flows really well. Yeah. That you didn't see in like The Oyster Princess, where that home is actually a visual gag in the film, how impossible to figure out that mansion is. Okay. But you can kind of draw this location in your head in a way that I haven't seen for any single location in any Lubitsch movie before. So we can see him connecting those dots. Again, I'm constantly trying to rebel against my own instinct to think results-based with this, to think with that endpoint in mind as if there's a singularity that was inevitable, which it isn't. But I found that fascinating. Yeah, it's a good, solid set. And with feelings, Mm -hmm. if I think of uh, Meyer from Berlin, it has some big solid sets and then it has some very flimsy looking flats (laughs) and somebody walking into a room where you can see the wallpaper through the doorway. But when they arrive in the room, it's completely different wallpaper. This space does feel convincing. And yes, when she's being sent to fetch his slippers, there is a feeling there that the fact that we watch her leave the room, travel up the stairs to the bedroom, into the bedroom, get the slippers, back down the stairs, back into the room with the slippers. It's using duration and it's funnier because it's so pedantically showing us every step of the journey. It finds value in all of that. And it does make me think a little bit of things that he would do much, much later. I'm thinking of the, if I had a million, is basically one big durational joke Mm -hmm. where somebody takes a long time to go somewhere and do something and it gets funnier the more... The more doors he has to go through. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like that. It's a simpler version and it might be that he pretty much felt he would have to do it like that because the Nouvelle Vague hasn't happened. We don't just show people leaving and then arriving where they're supposed to be. We have to show the in-between part of it. But it felt like a good deliberate choice and it was funny in itself yeah i think too that as far as the production design goes i was kind of looking this up notably this film did not involve kurt richter it was in this case jack winter so every time there's a new collaborator here i have to double back and go wait when did they come in but the cinematographer theodore sparkle i recognized yes mr sparkle I wanted to get to him. He has been responsible for the visuals on almost all of, I think, the best movies we've talked about. He did I Don't Want to Be a Man, uh, The Doll, The Oyster Princess, Madame Du Barry, which is a beautiful looking film. And he would continue to work with him until Lubitsch left for Hollywood. And one, Theodore Sparkle is an incredible name for a cinematographer. Holy moly. Yes. And he was very young at this point, actually. I think he was, uh, he would have been 25 when this film was made. Yeah. He was 24 when I Don't Want to Be a Man was made. That blows my mind. Sure. But uh, his work here, I think, is getting more and more nuanced with the lighting. I mean, in something like I Don't Want to Be a Man, you still have that kind of, at all times, some shape to the light, but mostly it's this lit set. You can feel the 
five or six hard sources just coming from camera side. <laughs> and in this film here, you have a need for some naturalism, actually, some sense that they're actually in those locations. So even when they're outdoors, where the sun is placed uh, shapes everyone's faces very nicely, creates a ratio, we might say. The interiors are sometimes flat, but occasionally with the party scene, you have this nice sense of darkness because you have like Emil Yannings has this little sparkle in his eye that gives us a sense of, oh, this is an intense fellow. Yeah. So you have light that is shaped more than we've seen so far. Yeah. And Sparkle went to Hollywood, but seems to have not worked with Lubitsch again when they were both over there, which is a shame. Mm -hmm. He did some terrific stuff over there. He did Renoir's Le Chien, right? Mm. And Caravan and The Glass Key. And then he died in 46 for reasons that are unknown to me. His penultimate film, Murder, He Says, has got some amazing uh, sort of special effects photography because the plot involves radium. And Lubitsch was a very complimentary of American cinematographers, too. Nerf. He repeatedly expressed his admiration at how technically accomplished they were and how much they could move the crane where he wanted, you know, that sort of thing. And I think there was a bit of an unfortunate sidelining of Sparkle's, I think, incredible accomplishments at this period. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all the directors who went to Hollywood from elsewhere were drawn by the technical possibilities of having the best equipment and also people who were trained to use it. And it was an attraction for Hitchcock as well. Mm -hmm. I can do my stuff better here with the level of expertise and the greater budget and the stock of equipment and getting the newest equipment as soon as it's available. Mm -hmm. Hitchcock, I think there was a certain begrudging of him going to Hollywood as World War II was beginning for Britain. But, you know, he was never going to be, have been drafted. Mm. It was purely from his point of view, I think, just the attraction of a bigger toy set. Yeah. Even though Lubitsch is in some ways a miniaturist, those big toys and the ability to make things lavish and opulent and to present that in a way as well, not just having a grand set, but being able to move through it in a beautiful camera move. He developed a finesse. Maybe it's less that he had the bigger toys because I don't know if he ever made a film as big as Loves the Pharaoh again. But to me, it's almost like he could be more precise with his toys. Like you watch something like, so this is Paris and there's a certain finesse and precision to the camera work, the lighting and everything there uh, that exists in none of his Berlin work. I also think it's tough to overstate the effect of just the continuing development of the industry. Okay. By the time you get to So This Is Paris, that's 26. Uh, the industry was in a very different place worldwide than it was in 20. Yeah. That six-year period was a world of difference everywhere. Yes. Look at the stuff in Berlin at that time, in the, in the mid to late 20s, right? I mean, think about Metropolis. By the time you get to that, you're in a different universe. Yeah, it's an explosion. And the Germans managed their end of that explosion while going through social upheaval. It's still incredible how advanced the German cinema got between 1920 and 1930. And had they been allowed to continue developing without the unfortunate events that followed, uh, hard to imagine where they would have wound up. I don't suppose anybody could rival the commercial might of Hollywood, but I think by the time it all fell apart, they were getting to the point where they were making the best films, despite having lost people like Lubitsch and Murdoch and Lang, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Well, Lang stuck around until... The last possible second. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that, that story, like, you know, the apocryphal story about him leaving? Yeah. I try and ask this as many people as possible. What's your take on what actually happened there? Because it's such a contentious question of the circumstances with which he left. Well, he certainly created a finely crafted and very amusing story. Mm -hmm. And it's a good story. We shouldn't stop telling that story. <laughs> but it appears to be mostly not true. But I mean, I think he ultimately 
left for the right reasons. Uh, he left later than most because I think he was more comfortable than most. He was less threatened by what was going on. He probably had assurances that his being part Jewish was not going to be held against him because they liked what he was doing up to a point, mostly. And the story about his wife being a Nazi? I've heard some slight contradiction to that. Oh, interesting. But it's not that great. <laughs> no, I interviewed, you know, she had an Indian husband for a while. Mm -hmm. After Lang, she had taken up with a Mr. Tendulkar. And then he went back to India and married an Indian woman. And so the daughter of that marriage is still alive. And she met Thea von Harbu after the war. And she said, well, she was never, as far as I could see, anti-Semitic. She believed in certain aspects, but it was a little bit woolly. It wasn't absolutely clear what was being said here. But the impression that was being attempted to create was that uh, she was a lovely woman. She was just a lovely woman. Mm. So, right. Okay. But she did join the Nazi party. Well, she kind of had to mm -hmm. in order to continue working. Right. But other people didn't do that. <laughs> Henny Porton, for instance, uh, was blacklisted by the Nazis because she wouldn't divorce her Jewish husband. Mm. So she just didn't work. So you could choose not to work, for instance, if it was a matter of principle. So yeah, I think she was, if not a died in the will Nazi, she was still a Nazi. You can say that she was a Nazi because she joined the party. She was an actual member of the Nazi party. Can't really get away from that. Actually, out of curiosity, what ended up happening to Henny Porton? In 44, apparently, she ended up homeless because a bomb destroyed her home and it was forbidden to shelter a fully Jewish person. Yeah. So she and her husband were actually out on the streets. Uh, along with Emily Annings, whose house was blown up. Mm -hmm. You know the story of when the Americans came into Berlin, the Annings rushed to meet them holding aloft his Oscars. You know, I'm one of you. Yeah, don't shoot. I have an Oscar. Or, you know. Yeah, what a great Emily Yanning scene. <laughs> That's a story that certainly ought to be true. Oh, man. Yeah, as far as Lang is concerned, I can only say that I have seen the photographs of his Berlin apartment and it is very nice and it is full of very nice things. <laughs> and I can imagine it would be a wrench to up sticks and leave, even for Paris, even for Hollywood. You know, he was the king of the German film industry. Although they had admittedly suppressed uh, Testament of Dr. Mabuza, so we're told. I sort of respect him. I mean, he seems like an appalling man in many ways, but I sort of respect him more for the fact that he was able to tear himself away. Mm -hmm. I don't get the impression that he was really pushed or threatened, but I don't know for sure. It might be worth talking about Yannings and all this Perhaps. too, because he might be the single most infamous Oscar winner. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the only Nazi Oscar winner, probably. Sternberg is crushing in his memoir where he said that the fact that Jannings went back and acted for the Nazis and he had boasted to me about his Jewish wife and how proud he was of her. Mm. Sternberg was utterly appalled by him and also said he was a colossal shit to work with. <laughs> he worked with him twice but then the first time at the end of the film he said I considered him a diabolical hazard to any artistic undertaking <laughs> and I wished him the best in his subsequent exploits but not with me. And then proceeded to work with them a second time, <laughs> having said all of that. That's a little more harsh than Dietrich's calling him a ham. Yeah. Uh, later on. Of course he's a ham. He's a good ham. He is a very skilled ham. What was the reason why he returned to Germany? I mean, he could have stayed outside, but he chose not to. He didn't have the English. Blame sound. You know, he's got a Hollywood career. He's winning Oscars. And then sound comes in. 
Mm. And so if you listen to him speaking English in the English version of the Blue Angel, you can see why he would not feel confident that he could earn a living in Hollywood. Yeah. So it wasn't, so far as I know, it wasn't like an attraction to Hitler because he went back before that and he stayed because that's where he was making money and where he could make money. And so, you know, if it wasn't fascism, then it was just pure greed and the willingness to go along with it for the sake of going along with it, which is still pretty deplorable. I didn't know much about Yennings prior to this year. Mm-hmm. And it's a very quick rabbit hole to go down to of like, oh, this entertaining German actor from the 20. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, here he is with Goebbels. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, the way that all these relationships fractured in so many ways and lives were destroyed. I mean, Ozzy Oswald's life was pretty much ruined by World War II. <laughs> she died in 47. Oh, God. Penniless in Prague which is so tragic for someone who is just so full of life on screen. Yellings must have had something because Conrad Veidt liked him very much. <laughs> oh, interesting. They were both in Hollywood at the same time. They both went back to Germany because they figured their English wasn't going to support them. But Veidt left Germany as soon as the writing on the wall became clear, mm-hmm. came to Britain, only left Britain to go to Hollywood in order to earn more money to donate to the British war effort. Such a great mensch. But he found Yannings in some way charming and attractive, at least when they were both mm. two crouts making Hollywood movies in the last silent days. Naturally enough, they would gravitate to each other, I guess. It's interesting, too. I mean, we've been talking about this in a few of the episodes. The relationship of a lot of these artists to their initial home country uh-huh. post-war fascinates me because Lubitsch seemed to have lost all interest in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> it just wasn't a concern for him versus Wilder had this tumultuous internal relationship with the place. Uh-huh. He returned multiple times, not with the intent of staying, but for various films and, and that sort of thing. And he seemed to hold these very contradictory feelings about the place. Yeah. And talking about filmmakers' stories that are not true, he's got the one about screening the concentration camp film that he'd made to German audiences and give them a paper and pencils so that they could write notes like in a Hollywood preview. And he said at the end of it, none of the notes filled in, all of the pencils stolen. <laughs> this appears to not be true. He made that up because it sounded good and it expressed his bitterness in a way that was more effective than the truth, which is a number of them did write notes. In a way, it's easier for me to understand how Wilder felt and how he tried to deal with it in his work as opposed to Lubitsch, who makes the one film about the war. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, the war is going on in the background in Clooney Brown, or is coming, then does not refer to it again at all in his work. It's maybe more surprising that he makes To Be or Not To Be, given that his concerns were with more, more pleasant aspects of life. I mean, it's also worth noting that virtually all of these films made during the war and post-World War II are set pre-war. Well, Cleany Brown emphatically set before World War II. Yeah, it's on its way by the end of the film. They're off to in America, so we don't know really what's happened with the war. All we know is they escaped. <laughs> yeah. They got out of it before things got bad. Also, the <laughs> first time I watched Cleany Brown, we were all convinced that Adam Belinsky was not Adam Belinsky or he's a different Adam Belinsky. Because this whole thing about him being a great sort of revolutionary firebrand hero. Yeah. He seems to have no interest in being that whatsoever. No. (laughs) So is this going to be a plot twist? No, it's not concerned with plot twists, really. It's interesting that you point that out because uh, that is actually something in Clooney Brown where I kind of had that like, am I going insane moment Uh, while watching it? I'm like, they're clearly leading to him not being that person and that's going to be a thing. But no, he is that person. Yeah, you're right. He just doesn't care at all. Yeah, we're going to 
do something that might seem like it's going to be a big plot twist, but no, that's just to get us onto the next situation. Mm-hmm, exactly. The casualness of it. There is a lot there too. I mean, as far as kind of what might be missing in a film like Cole Heisey's Daughters, it's everywhere in Clooney Brown. There's this sense of a deep inner want and suppressed pain of all these characters. They want to be something. Maybe they're not that. Right. Or like Trouble in Paradise. They have become that thing through sheer tyranny of will. And in something like Cole Heisey's Daughters, it's there, but it's so gestational. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that's why Liesl is the most interesting character, perhaps, where she has wants she doesn't realize. She has this romanticism in her, this loneliness that I think it's clearly in the text, but it's not fully explicated. Mm-hmm. It's not expanded upon. Yeah, It's there. And I think Penny does such a fantastic job of making the most of that. Yeah. It's funny. I watched recently the Franco Zeffirelli Taming of the Shrew, and they have a similar thing in a way where they want to give the impression that Liz Taylor's character is attracted to Richard Burton's character. And their problem is that Shakespeare hasn't given us any dialogue to express that. Mm -hmm. So they are inventing scenes basically of her just looking at him wordlessly, spying on him through a sort of peephole, through the transom of her her door. And that's to make this a romance. Because I think their big idea is how do we make this play acceptable is, well, we're just casting the stars of the greatest love affair of the 20th century. Everybody knows they're madly in love with each other. So we can do anything. It doesn't matter. (laughs) That's their policy. But it's almost like, and I think maybe it's a similar kind of thing. Shakespeare hasn't provided any dialogue that Liz Taylor can use. And Lubitsch is making a silent film, so he hasn't got any dialogue. Mm. And to put it in an intro title would be to overstate it. So it's the kind of thing that would naturally perhaps seem best to underplay and just put in with occasional moments where the character is alone and slightly bleak looking and you realize, yeah, she's not happy like this. Lubitsch is a good fit for sound. Yeah. <laughs> in a way that a lot of his contemporaries weren't. I mean, I think there's plenty of directors that we can point to in the silent era where they never quite found their feet with sound. Yeah. The Abel Gaunces, the Buster Keatons of the world. I mean, I think Buster Keaton might have, but he wasn't allowed. Yeah. The list goes on and on and on. And you have people like Chaplin where he kind of kept making silent films for a while in the sound era. Yeah. Or at least wordless ones. Yeah. Yeah, films that could function as silent films, essentially. Yeah. But someone like Lubitsch, or I would argue Hitchcock, too. And Hawks. Yeah, exactly. They all took to sound and took full advantage of the possibilities. Long's an interesting case, actually, in this, where I think he was fully himself in both worlds. I wouldn't put one set of work above the other, but it's incredibly rare for me to find directors where I think they were as great in both worlds. Uh I mean, Lubitsch has his share of silent greats, but it's more weighted toward the back of his career. I think his late silence, he feels quite himself by the time you get to the late Hollywood silence mm-hmm. and things like... Uh, you got Student Prince yeah. and, and uh, Windermere's fan. Yes. Yeah. And that transfers across quite rightly. Like, we're still in his sound films. He's using shots in a relatable way. Mm-hmm. He's showing you something, but he's implying something else by showing it to you. Mm-hmm. And you get to put the pieces together. As Billy Wilder put it, the one plus one. <laughs> and leave the audience to add it up. Yeah, you get to participate in the creation of the humor, which is one of the most special things. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, David. My pleasure. For coming by. Is there anything that you want to, once again, uh, point the audience towards of your work that they might find of interest? Oh, I suppose it's worth mentioning that I wrote a novel, which is on Amazon, and I've got a sequel on the way, which is a slightly different ballpark from my film critical stuff, but it's a World War II science fiction horror comedy. Um <laughs> So the first book is 
called We Used Dark Forces. And the forthcoming sequel is called Is Your Journey to the Center of the Earth Really Necessary? Oh, wonderful. I was going to make a joke when you said a sequel. I was going to say, is it called The Nightingale Murder and The Nightingale Returns? <laughs> Which, that joke will only make sense to our listeners in about a year when we do Clooney Brown. <laughs> but no, thanks. And of course, your blog, as we mentioned earlier, I'll put a link to the show notes and to your book. Your blog is wonderful. Thank you. I also recommend for those of you who have the Madame Dubarry slash Where's My Treasure Eureka Blu-ray, read the intros. They're great. Thanks very much. Next week, Maddie Whittle joins us to discuss Romeo and Juliet in the Snow. Gloria Mercer was our dialogue editor for this episode. Head over to www.ernstcast.com for links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. 